So we're going to continue the sermon series. Uh, we're going to wrap it up today called Basic. And we've been talking through kind of basic theology, things that we believe is important to think deeply about in your life because it affects everything. And I know for a lot of people, you know, you kind of maybe check out with this stuff. You're like, man, what's the big deal? What does it matter? And maybe you could make an argument that it doesn't matter. I'd be willing to talk to you about that if it matters or not what we believe. Um, it seems to me that the things we believe affect how we live, and then the way we live shows what we believe, right? So there's some kind of connectivity for this. This is our fifth week and our final week in the series, and um, I don't know how it's been for you guys. I know for me, it's not, and this is not about me, but for me it's been really challenging. Um, it's cr- caused me to think deeply about things that I've not had to think deeply about very often. And then our family group discussions have been really, really good. And I'm not just bragging on family groups because I'm in one, um, but they've really, really have been good. Hard things, you know, I was, I, and just things that we ought to go, man, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? What we believe about who God is or about salvation or idols in our life, right? And then last we talked about baptism, which, you know, let's talk about that for a minute, not baptism again. We kind of uh, talked about that biblically I started thinking about the series, it kind of goes this way, like the first three weeks were the things that we've believed, the fundamentals of our faith that we believe, and then the, the last two, baptism and communion, are things that we do because of what we believe, right? And there are kind of differences. I promise you this, through the series, I'm not trying to start fights in the church. That's not my goal at all. And I'm certainly not trying to prove that I'm right, Olivia Dempsey. She likes to always say that to me. <laughs> you hate to be wrong. It's not about that. I want to understand who God is rightly. Not for my own satisfaction, but though I might know him more fully, right? And there's tons and tons of expressions. Matter of fact, tonight, and I think Dale mentioned this, at the St. Joseph's Hospital, we're going to all come together uh, as the big C Church of Christ, those who are worshiping Jesus, to celebrate Thanksgiving service together, right? But in that room, there'll be many, many traditions, many, many different expressions of faith that may or may not be biblical, and that's a problem for me. So, so that's what we've been talking about is like kind of biblical theology, and we've been doing that for a few weeks. I already mentioned to you that the first week was on God. We talked about that. Then idolatry, having no false gods before God. Then how salvation works, which honestly has been like, it's the highest, the most important, you know, week in the series, but it's been the most difficult, honestly. And I've had some difficult conversations with people about what it means to be saved, how exactly that happens, as I understand it biblically. And there are lots of traditions out there that say there are different ways to be saved. Then we talk about baptism, and now we're going to talk about communion. Lastly, communion. It might seem like a strange place to end on communion, but we've all had different experiences with communion. Um, and and if, if you think about it, we're trying to get to the very core of what we're, who we are as the people of God and what it means to worship him in this life. In this life, right? I would make an argument for this. This will all be cleared up when we meet Jesus. <laughs> all these things will go away when we meet Jesus. There'll be absolute clarity on how worship and faith and communion with Christ works when we meet Jesus for eternity. But for now, how we do this stuff. So we're going to do that. Um, one final kind of nerd thing here, if you are a nerd like me. I'm not too, too much of a nerd, but I'm a little bit of a nerd. I learned something this week about this issue of basic language. I, oh, I've, I've, my first language I ever learned was basic. Not my first language, it was English, but my first programming language was basic. And I did not know this. This is so funny. But it's, it's actually, it's an acronym. Who knew that? Anybody know that? that you guys did? Good for you, right? Nerds in the front? Woot, woot. Yeah, it's an acronym. It stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code, which I got to say, as a child of the 80s, sounds pretty cool. Sounds pretty cool to me. And that's what we've been talking about is these basic instructions and how we live them out. And I guess I'll caveat that with how we live them out at Family Bible Church, which I think we should always be examining and questioning. Why do we do it that way? Are we, are we, doing, it the right, are we doing it appropriately? Are we honoring God through it? Is it about us or about him? Is it tradition or, or is it faithfulness? Is it, is it something else? So we always want to be doing that. That's our challenge as the people of God to do it together. Um, I want to do what I always do before we jump into the topic today. I want to pray. We always do this, and this is, this is not ritual. This is because we know God intimately, and His Spirit lives in us, and we can know no wisdom apart from Him. As a matter of fact, the conversation that I had with someone this week is, you cannot be saved apart from God. There's just no way. There's just no way. And so everything requires God's action first. 
So we're going to pray that he would act this morning. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and worship you. We, we do only know you by your grace, and we only know you partially because you're beyond our knowledge. You're beyond our understanding. Your glory is, is beyond the heavens above and uh, the earth below and all of our imaginations. Um, you're greater than everything we could possibly know or dream or imagine. And so we confess that today. And we admit, Father, that we, as we sang today, are sinners. And we have a tendency to screw everything up. Unless you reveal yourself to us, we will know nothing of you. Indeed, unless you were to rescue us from our sin state, we would be bound to it forever and condemned to be separate from you. But in your great love, you have sent your Son that we might be saved and know you. And your Spirit in us that would compel us forward even when we're not believing, that would draw us to yourself, that would convict us of our sins, would show us our error and invite us into your kingdom. Uh, you are good to us. We ask today that we'd have uh, attention paid to you, that we would have our eyes fixed on you, our ears set upon your, uh, your words, and that, and that you would be glorified as we gather together today. Um, teach us. You are our teacher. You are our Father, and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to kind of talk about this issue of communion. Now, we're, we're going to get a little, and I know this is like maybe minorityness, a little bit into the kind of background about communion and why it's a big deal. If you've been around Family Bible Church for a while, you'll know that we celebrate communion every th third Sunday just because. There's no real reason we do that. We just always have. That's <laughs> how it started, probably from another tradition, I would assume, before Family Bible existed. My former church, we had it on the first Sunday every month. When I grew up, we had it every week always, every week. And, and there are lots of experiences of communion. I know that communion is a big deal for a, a lot of people because they sometimes won't take communion. They, they, don't, they won't receive it. Or I should say, sometimes I won't receive communion in certain contexts. And, and I want to talk a little bit today about what the problem is with communion and why it would be worth talking about that we should engage rightly. So we're going to start kind of conversationally, I guess, about communion, and then we're going to get into the scriptures, and there's uh, quite a few of those today, so bear with me a little bit. But I, I want to say from the, up, uh, from the out start, be warned. I'm giving you fair warning. Uh, there's a table up here today, and at the end of the service, our plan, God willing, is we're going to share communion together. That's our plan. So, so just to be thinking about that, right? As we engage in these things today, you might be asking, am I going to participate in communion today or not? Should I or not? And as a matter of fact, when we serve communion on those third Sundays, we often struggle with how much instruction should we give when we serve communion. You know, are we being clear enough? We assume people know what it means or what, why we do it, how we do it. And so today we're going to spend some time talking about the biblical model for communion. But before we do, I want to talk about what communion is a little bit. So I was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition, as I've shared with you before, right? And, and many people were raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. So there's, this, there's kind of some nerdy words I'm going to drop to this morning. And there's one of them that I learned called transubstantiation. Now, just bear with me, but transubstantiation is this idea that in the saying of the words by the priest in front of the altar, listen to the language I'm using, by the way, it's all fair and legitimate, with, with the words that the priest says in front of the altar, the elements, that would be the bread and the juice, or the bread and the wine, if you're a little more risky, um, like Jesus, are transformed. It's called transubstantiation. It means the substance themselves are changed in the act, the ritual that is performed on the altar before God. That's, that's, that's one thing that people believe about communion, Right? Um, if, if I were to argue, argue this morning that we believe in transubstantiation, then you might want to theologically say, I'm not sure I agree that transubstantiation is a thing for a particular reason. Then, so I went to look this up because I'm not claiming to be an expert, and I was amazed to find there's like a whole bunch of different understandings of communion. I kind of knew that would happen. But there's, there's, I'm going to run through them real quickly, right, and g give you like the armchair quarterback's version. You can dig into it more if you care. But one is called the real presence now, they actually claim even a higher authority than transubstantiation. They're like, it's the real presence of God in communion when we celebrate it. And, and that's, they just kind of, uh, the presence of Christ, and they celebrate th that communion in that way. Okay, 
and I'm going to try to kind of, then there's transubstantiation that I was raised in, um, not understanding, although I was an altar boy, and I was up there when the transubstantiating was happening. Like, I was there. I was part of the ritual, but didn't. And there was some great mysteries happening that I was like, what's happening in communion? Um, and I could tell you some really terrible altar boy stories that I, I shouldn't tell in public about things that we did because we were boys, and it was funny. We didn't, you know, um, we weren't nearly as serious as the faithful uh, or the priests were there. So then there's this other one that I just learned about called consubstantiation. And consubstantiation means that in the taking of the bread and the juice, as communion table is presented before us, um, that the, the, the body and blood of Christ are beside with the elements. Um, not that they're changed, but they're there, right? And there are traditions that teach that, that when this the certain words are said over the communion elements that the, 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 the God's flesh and um, blood that is required for the payment of our sins we talked about is there in the communion offering beside the elements. But they're not changed. Okay? Then we're kind of working our way down. There's one called sacramental union which means that the sacrament actually connects us to Christ, that when we, when we say the certain words and we receive it and we partake in communion together as a community of faith, that in that moment the sacrament connects us to God in a special way through the elements of communion, the body and the blood of Christ, that we have a sacramental union. All right? I'm kind of walking down. Then there's this one that's awesome called, I'm not saying it's awesome because I endorse it, I think it's uh, awesome. It's called objective reality, which means it is happening, it is Christ's body and blood, um, and we don't know how. <laughs> I like it because it's called like, mystery. <laughs> we don't know what's happening in communion, but it's special, right? Uh, maybe like people would argue about the scripture, um, we, 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 don't, we don't know what's happening, it's a mystery, but it's different than any other book you read. It's different. You can say why that is, but we experience it differently. Communion. Than other meals. Then there's the pneumatic presence, which means that the Spirit of God is working in and through communion. So when we partake together as a community of faith, that the Spirit of God is kind of breathed into the church, and, and that's the way that Christ shows up in communion through the Spirit. By the way, isn't it interesting in the scripture that sometimes the Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus? But Jesus sent his Spirit. He talked about the Trinity and how they're. Um, uh, co-equal and co-eternal and um, indwelling together forever in relationship, perfect harmony and relationship. Then, now we're getting back to where maybe, maybe some of you were raised, and this is called memorialism, or you might call it symbolism. Um, matter of fact, the church that I attended before here was a, a memorialist in that way because the table literally said, do this in remembrance of me. They want to be very clear, this is not an altar, this is a table, <laughs> and we are remembering Christ at the table. That's what we do. And it's called memorialism. It's just remember Jesus. There's nothing um, mysterious happening in communion. There's nothing special about the elements. Uh, there's nothing special about the juice or the bread. Because you know it's a big deal, right? Uh, like in traditions where the words are said and it's changed, that's holy like Christ. And it's no longer just bread and juice. It can't be disposed of. But in memorialism, it's just bread and juice when all is said and done a way to remember Jesus. And then lastly, this is the last one, is suspension. There are some faith traditions that believe actively now we shouldn't do communion at all. They believe that that was the last supper. It was, you know, put upon them. Maybe the early church celebrated it for a while, love feasts and things like that, but really it's, it's, it's stopped. We don't need to have communion because it doesn't have anything special for us. It's, there's no reason to do it. And they're believing people, by the way, I'm not saying they aren't believing. They just don't believe communion is required or is good, is necessary, doesn't anything special than anything else. All right, so that's kind of the list. Now, if you're not exhausted yet, check it out. Why does it matter? Why would it matter how we celebrate communion? Um, and and a, one other caveat I'll add here is there's a concept called open table and closed table. There are traditions where we say um, there's an open table and everyone can come. And there's traditions where the table is closed. That means if you are not a member of this church, you cannot come. Or this denomination or association or whatever. And so you're actually disinvited from the table unless you join the church. Right? 
So traditionally here at Family Bible, we've celebrated an open table of communion. I would say we lean, lean toward memorialism for what it's worth, but also some mystery in what's happening because we believe the communion is special and different. And we don't quite, I don't, I'll speak for myself, quite understand what God is doing through communion when he does it, but he certainly does seem to work through worship and communion. So why would it matter? Um, so one of the experiences I have now is, as I became a believer as an adult is going back to things like a Roman Catholic Mass. And, and again, I'm not picking on anyone who has a Roman Catholic background or traditions in their life, but for me, if you really listen to the words, it can become troubling. It can become difficult. There's one particular sentence that the people say, not the priests, so you can't say, let's well, just priests saying the things, that the, the priests that I, that I th- always, always makes me go, What? I want to share the words with you. May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name for our good and the good of his holy church. That is spoken by the people to the priest who's standing at the altar in front of the transubstantiated offering. And that's a big deal. And it always um, strikes me when we say those words, it's like, please accept this sacrifice at your hands to the man in the front of the room. Like it would require you guys to say, please accept sacrifice at my hands. And I know there's some complexity there that the priests are functioning in the role of Jesus, which I don't necessarily agree with either, other than how we all do as believers if we're believing. But words like sacrifice and altar begin to kind of feel weird to me. I'm going to tell you why. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. Benjamin, I am not functioning up here, so if you want to push that to Hebrews 10, that would be fantastic. And we're going to start in verse 8. This is, uh, Hebrews is written to the Jewish people about Jesus the Messiah, the fulfillment of the long-awaited prophecies. And um, it, there's, it's a great, great book. We've studied it before and read it before. Um, but we're just going to hear this particular passage about Jesus Christ. And by the way, just, just so you know, like in verse 5, it says, therefore, when Christ came in the world, he said, so this is talking about Christ, Jesus, be very clear here. Verse 8, uh, first he said, that's Christ, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here am I, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. This covenant conversation here, by the way. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. Make an argument. You are set aside in Christ once for all in the sacrifice he made. Check it out, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So he's, he's I'm not, by the way, this isn't Roman Catholicism I'm talking about here. This is any priest sitting in front of any altar who offers sacrifices every day, right? So this could be um, Jewish people who are still functioning in the Old Covenant. They keep offering sacrifices every day for the sins. But he makes the argument that it will not take away the sins. It can never take away sins verse 12 but when this priest that would be jesus christ had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy and to that i say holy cow right I mean, he made perfect once and forever all those who are being made holy. Perfect forever. This ties exactly, and this is why it's a big deal if we believe there's a sacrifice happening here or if we believe remembering Jesus and communing with Jesus is different, right? Because this gets back into our conversation about salvation. He not only is the author of our faith, he's the perfecter of our faith. He doesn't only call us into believing, he sanctifies us. He conforms us to Christ. And here again, we see the same thing in Hebrews taught, that he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's the people of God, being made holy. All right. 
yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. Well, okay, I'm just going to read it. I can't help myself. <laughs> um, the Holy Spirit also testifies about this when he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts, and I will write them upon their minds. There's a transformation, not of communion, but of us, right? And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Now, I guarantee you I am not the deepest theological thinker out there. I've heard a lot of very wise, very studied people discuss things. But um, to me, I, I, that should, if someone's saying we're going to offer sacrifice, we're going to go, for what? If we can sacrifice again, what did Jesus die for the first time? What can we add to his salvation? What can we change as sinful human beings? Check this out. In verse 10 it says, and by his will. That's what Jesus said, I've come to do his will. And by his will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ Jesus once and for all. So that gives you an illustration maybe, of why we should pay attention to stuff like that, you know? That we should go, what is happening when I participate in communion? And, and do I agree with what's being presented to me right now? Do we need another sacrifice for sins? Or do I know that Christ sacrificed once for all so that all sins may be forgiven and that we can live into that promise instead? Here's another way it's said. This is from First uh, Peter, and I keep forgetting my clicker doesn't click, but push that for me, would you? First Peter, yeah, um, says it very succinctly. And by the way, this is Peter, right? Like, this is um, Peter, which the uh, you know, papacy would claim is the first pope. Um, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. Jesus died once for all. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about because communion is this amalgamation that's kind of combining together of the Last Supper and of um, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, which is why it's a big deal in every faith tradition, no matter what they believe. So how can we get this wrong then? I mean, how can we do it wrong? Is it possible to do it wrong? I want you to turn now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, and that should, there you go. Thank you very much. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It should be a little bit to the left of Hebrews, if you were in Hebrews. <clears throat> And we're going to talk through this, um, this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read to you verses, uh, chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. This is the words that sound familiar. As a matter of fact, these are the words that many traditions believe change the elements or change the substance or change the relationship or whatever. I'll give you an example. One time I was invited to participate in an ecumenical gathering um, at, a, at a, a, um, another group of believers uh, and um, I was speaking there, and they were going to have communion, and, and then when they found out that I wasn't of the same uh, faith tradition, I guess you would say, um, they had to bring in a specialist to do communion. I wasn't allowed to do it because I was only a pastor. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't able. And, and now here's the thing. Um, these are the words that were said. These very words we're going to read right now were said, but I wasn't able to say them in a way that would make this communion count. Okay. I wasn't upset. It was really cool to see the experience differently. Here's the words that most say. For I received from our Lord what I also passed on to you. This is the Apostle Paul writing, by the way. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 25. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's usually where we would stop, right? That's where most churches will read those words. They'll say that during communion at some point. They might not read it verbatim. They might just kind of, you know, on the night Christ betrayed, took bread and he broke it, gave thanks. By the way, fun fact, maybe you don't know, the idea of giving thanks in Greek is Eucharisto, which is where we get the idea of Eucharist. So all these kind of discussions are called Eucharistic theology. What we believe about what's happening here. So 
in that offering that Christ made, he Eucharistoed, right? He gave thanks to God for the offering, and then he broke the bread. These become symbols of what happens. Check it out. Both times here, when Jesus does this, he says, do this in remembrance of me, right? So you go, ah, oh, there's a memorialist in there, right? That's what they're saying. Remember Jesus. That's the point, isn't it? No one believes that you shouldn't remember Jesus in communion, but should you only remember Jesus in communion? Is it possible to get this wrong? I mean, Paul says here, I receive this from the Lord, then I pass it on to you. Do you think that's interesting at all? Anyone? Because you know, Paul was Saul when Jesus was killed. You know, Paul wasn't there at the Last Supper. That's interesting. But Paul says here, what I receive from the Lord, I now give to you, the people in Corinth. Let me ask you this. Is it possible to get it wrong? Let's find out. Read with me verse 17. Man, this is the funniest thing about having this be our communion um, words because, listen to Paul. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. How do you want to get, how you want to get that letter <laughs> from Apostle Paul? In the following directives I'm about to talk to you about, I have no praise for you because your gatherings are doing more harm to the body of Christ than good. You know what he's saying? You're getting this wrong. You're doing more harm than good through these things. 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church... That's a ecclesia, the called out ones. There are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Listen to Paul's theology on division. No doubt there have to be divisions or differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. Don't hear that talked about very much. That that's how God discerns, that's how people discern who's right, if God's approving of them or not. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. So he's totally, unless you think I'm being, you know, he's totally teaching corrective theology on communion. This is what he's doing. It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as, uh, as, as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. So you're probably having wine. Just putting that out there. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What can I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And then he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread gave thanks and broke it. You, you hear what's, like, Paul is chastising the church. You're doing more harm than good. Am I going to praise you for this? Absolutely not. Like, do you get carte blanche to do whatever you want because you're the church? Absolutely not. Instead, I'm going to tell you what's important. And then he teaches these words about communion. He offers some things there that we ought to pay attention to about what communion is, what it's not. It's not food. It's not food. I mean, it's just food, but it's not food. Because he says, don't you have homes you could eat and drink in? If you just need to get drunk, don't go to church. Stay home and get drunk. But if you want to come and experience communion, go to church. What else is he saying there? He says, you all are pushing ahead of one another, right? Who can get in the line first? Who can have the biggest piece of communion bread or the biggest cup? I don't know what they were doing, right? Big swigs, man. I don't know. It sounds like, because it says some are going hungry by the end and others are, are completely obliterated. They're drunk from it. Paul has concern that everyone, there's something that's the same. Oh, wait. There's something that when Jesus is at a table, there's more than enough food and drink to go around. Have you heard the stories about Jesus' life? He's not a God of inadequacy or insufficiency. So Paul then teaches. All right, now, 
I'm not going to go back through the verse we read, but we read them, right? 23 to 26. Now listen to this, 27. Therefore, that means because of this teaching, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That verse has been brought to the, leadership team, uh, to the attention of the leadership team at this church before because um, there was a challenge to ask, are we teaching adequately what communion means? Because there was some concern that people thought it was just bread and juice. Why not? If you want to eat it, no big deal. And the question was, are we teaching rightly? And is there a chance that by receiving communion in an unworthy manner that they are guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we do not want any part of that? So we had to go, hmm, are we teaching adequately about what it means to come to the communion table with Jesus? Let's, let's read on. 28, a man, and that's Adelphos, person, a person ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. So it's a time of self-reflection, time of consideration. There's plenty of bread and juice at home. I'm sure you probably don't have juice. I don't need people to have grape juice, really, other than people for the communion. Um, but I'm sure there's plenty of other things to eat and drink at home. This is a time for reflection. 29, anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing, well, that's interesting, right? Uh, seeing um, the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on him or herself. If you take it and omit, you just go, whatever. You bring judgment of God upon yourselves. Listen to 30, man. Then it gets really crazy. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. He's like, that's what's going on. You're not paying attention to what's happening in the, the Lord's Supper. Remember earlier he said, you're not, you're not even having the Lord's Supper when you're together. There's a result 31, if we judged ourselves, though, we would not come under judgment. That's implied God's judgment. If you examine yourself, you will not later be examined by Christ. If you reflect in this moment, it seems he's saying there's more that's happening here than eating bread and drinking wine. But instead, there's a, a right judgment of ourselves. Maybe, and this becomes experience in a way, but maybe a confessing of sin, a realization of our depravity, a realization of God's holiness again. Not that the elements have to be holy themselves to make that happen, but in the act that you reflect. Have you ever had a communion experience where you put the, put the elements in your mouth and, they just, and, they, and they're just st stuck there? And God brings to mind things that are not that are not right. If we judge ourselves, Paul says, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not listen to the word, be condemned along with the world. His conviction of sin is a blessing to us. The, the, the fact that, that it's hard to come sometimes and it's hard to, to um, you know, you don't feel like worshiping and, and you know you're in sin or you know you're doing things and you, you want to just push God away from your life, that if you feel like conviction, that's a gift of God that he's trying to save you from condemnation that it says the rest of the world will experience who are not bothered by such things. 33, we're gonna finish this out. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. That's funny. Real practically for a minute, by the way. One of the things we try to instruct on sometimes here, often, um, because we don't do a good job of it, is do we receive it when we all have the elements passed around, or do we take them as we feel led individually as the plate and juice comes around? And you might think that's minor, but it's awkward for people that are used to waiting. Here you kind of have Paul say, wait for each other to eat, right? Is that what he means literally, though? I don't know. I don't know. He says, don't be in a hurry. Look at 34. If anyone's hungry, he should eat first at home so that when you meet together, it will not result in judgment. And then he, this great little tagline, when I come in person, I'm gonna give you some more instructions. <laughs> Write it down, Paul. <laughs> no, it's fine, right? But it ought to be thought of seriously. It ought to matter to us about what communion is. Um, So, why is communion a big deal? 
So we're kind of back in this, we're backing everything back into Jesus, right? Why is it a big deal? Why is it a big enough deal that the Apostle Paul wrote to the early church and basically rebuked them in no uncertain terms about how they were behaving in the Lord's house, in the Lord's presence, in the body of Christ, right? I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, by the way, the, uh, the Last Supper, as it's known to us, is recorded in all four Gospels. It's recorded in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the same ways. And then John talks about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It's the same evening. It says the evening meal is served. It makes much less deal of communion, much more deal of, of acts of love in the Gospel of John. If you want to look it up later, by the way, you can find it. We're going to be in Matthew 26 right now, but in Mark 14 and Luke 22 and John 13 all cover the Last Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk through just <coughs> Matt, um, Matthew 26, 17 through 30. All right. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread... By the way, we just covered this in, in Mark as well, so you'll, you'll remember this, right? Their disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations to eat the Passover meal? So now here's a big deal already. There's a connecting point between the Passover and Jewish celebrations that God, you know, um, passed over his people and didn't judge them along with their captors, Egypt, right? That's the whole story there. It's the Exodus story. And so they're eating this Passover meal to remember, a memory meal of the Exodus, to remember God's mercy whenever he judged the, um, the slaveholders in Egypt, those who are not letting God's people worship him, okay? And so it says, they were, um, where do you want to make us, have us make the Passover meal? And he says, go into the city and a certain man and tell him the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. 19, so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover meal. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. This is now the Passover meal they're experiencing, right? And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, they were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It will be better for him if he had not been born. Right? Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, yes, it is you. Or, he said, you have said so. All right. Interesting. 26. The, and this is the, now we're going to get into what Paul talks about. While they were yet eating, Jesus took bread, and he, Eucharistoed, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. This is the, the idea that the Apostle Paul harkens back to. What the Lord gave to me, I now pass along to you. Right? This is my body. Um, then he took a cup, and he gave thanks, and he offered the cup to them and said, Drink from this cup, all of you. This is my blood of the, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you the truth, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it anew with you oh, in my Father's kingdom. This is the, the bread in the cup. A couple, couple things, right, we have to pay attention to. Um, he offers it to his disciples. He says, the bread is his body. Okay, this is where we get into this issue, transubstantiation, right? But here's the question. Like, Jesus did this a lot, right? Like, he would teach illustratively, like, this is what it's like. This is my body. And, and the word says the meal was already served, ironically, after Paul's instruction. <laughs> they were all pretty, probably full. And at that point, when they're satiated, he breaks bread. And he says, this is my body. This is what it's going to be like. And then he offers him a cup. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, or perhaps the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why, 
why is this a big deal? Come on, wrap this up here. Why is this a big deal? Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, decided the most profound thing he could do was call his disciples into a room, have a meal, break bread, share a cup, and talk about a promise that God is making to them. Of all the things he could have done, he could have given some more talks. He could have, you know, done a whole bunch of stuff. But this is what he did. He gathered his disciples around a table, and he broke bread. He gave thanks for the broken bread, and he offered it to them. This is my body, right? A cup of my blood. This is my blood offered to you. A new promise or a promise fulfilled. He does this. Did you catch it earlier? The teacher said, my time is, my appointed time is near. That's what his instructions for Passover were. Go to that guy in town and say, the teacher says, the time is near. And there was a guy there who was like, had a room ready for Passover. Yes, the teacher can have my room. And in that room, Jesus said those words. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. He's pointing forward, right, to what's about to happen. In what Paul later calls the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. He says he will not drink again, listen to the word, until he tastes it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Oh, come on. That's good news, ain't it? Yeah. Like, Jesus was famous. His first miracle was making some really awesome wine at a wedding, right? And here, the Last Supper, he's like, I'm not going to drink that again until I drink it with you in heaven. Yeah, baby. Like, if that don't get you excited, I don't know what's going on. If, that doesn't, if, if some of the foretaste we get of our relationship with Christ now don't get you excited to be able to sit at a table and, and celebrate communion with him, I don't know what's going on. Then 30, which often is left off as well. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Man, this is the beginning of suffering, right? But they sang a song after dinner. How awesome. How awesome is that? So you have Jesus inviting his closest um, disciples, those he's invested and poured into, to come. Listen to me, you know. We're going to wrap up, man. This, uh, this week's Thanksgiving, right? I mean, no matter who you are, there's something about getting people around a table that you're like, this is awesome, you know? I don't know if you're at the kid table Thanksgiving, right? I love the kid table, by the way. <laughs> um, I don't, but I'm starting to respect the head of the table. I'm, I get it, man. I, I've seen people sit at the head of the table, and I go, what a vision for life, to be a faithful man, a faithful husband, a, a good father. What a vision. There's something in this week that we celebrate that's holy, right? That's what the culture gets at. Oh, get the big turkey, get all the food and the fixings and spread it, and eat till you're stuffed, baby. Just go crazy, right? Why? Because there's something in that that communicates to us as people. A provision, abundance, celebration. Oh, what's the word? Church, thanksgiving. You, Christo. That's what it says. He gave thanks. And we are called to do the same. See, the truth is that we all uh, have the, uh, um, these experiences. We don't even know it. We, we, all, we all ignore it in daily life that we get to sit with people that we love and have a meal. And, and then we come in here and we're like, oh, this is Holy Communion. That's Holy Communion too. I'm going to share a verse of Scripture with you. From uh, I'm not going to read all this. This is from Matthew 22. There's twice in the Gospels where Jesus tells this story of a wedding feast. And I think it connects, Right? And, and he tells a story, he says, there's a great king, and he's having a great feast for a wedding, right? And he wants everyone to come to his party, and he sent out invitations to everyone. And here's the Bill Dempsey version of the story. Nobody wants to come to a stupid party. They don't want to come. 
they're too busy with life. They're too busy with stuff. They're like, man, I got stuff to do. I'm not, gonna, I'm not available Saturday night. I'm sorry, man. And you know what he says? And this is recorded differently in the two different Gospels. But he says, go out and get the weakest, lamest, most broken people, and you bring them to my banquet. All the hurting, the disadvantaged, the people who are shut out, you bring them into the best feast they've ever had in their life. And then the, the, the servants come and they say, well, Lord, we've done what you wanted, but there's still seats at your banquet. This is a huge banquet. It's huge, right? And you know what he says? The king says, go out and invite anyone who will come, anyone, and bring them in. Let them come and feast. Go into the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. There's this awesome king, and he's having an awesome banquet. And you're invited to come. You go, I didn't get an invitation officially. No, yeah, you were invited to come. I, we've been invited to invite you. We, we've been in, allowed to invite you as a servant. You come to his table and you eat. It's amazing. You can eat forever. <laughs> you can be so full. It's going to be crazy. This is going to be the party of eternity. I was going to say the century, but it's not enough. The millennium, it's not enough forever. See, this is the story of communion, that we are invited to the banquet of Christ. You and I are invited to dine with him at the kids' table, at the big table. That's what it is. That's the offering. He is pleased to share his goodness with us. And he doesn't withhold it, his blessing. You know what's funny? People say, how do you receive communion in an unworthy manner? And scripture says what? Without recognizing Christ in it. How do you receive it? Just communion. Just a ritual. It's just third Sunday. I guess it's time again. Versus, wow. Jesus set a table that we might eat. He poured a cup that we might be saved. That all that sin that nags us might be paid for. It's different. I told you the story before about um, youth camp we were doing. We were supposed to like, have communion. Let's have communion. And, all, and everyone got excited about communion. And then someone says, I need to run to town and get stuff. For communion. Why? Because you always have a certain kind of bread and certain, and someone goes, wait, we have Pepsi and hot dog buns, right? Like, yeah, let's do communion. Pepsi and hot dog buns. Let's do that. Kids, we didn't tell the kids, right? Really, let's do this, right? Some of the church adults were like, are you sure that's really communion? Okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to tell something to mess with you. I was at a youth function with a dear brother of mine. And it was a pizza party. <laughs> if you've never seen a feeding frenzy, <laughs> bring pizza to teenagers. <laughs> Especially if they've been playing a bunch of games. They're just like, <laughs> I mean, it's just pandemonium. You've got to stop them to pray. Hey, wait, wait, we're going to pray. God, thank you for this. Go. And it's just like, bam. And the kids, and they're just like, and you know, teenage boys are so obnoxious, right? They're pushing and shoving each other, and they're ripping pizza. I get five pieces. How many can I have? I'm taking a whole thing. They're going crazy. And in the middle of this chaos, where I'm thinking, we should have some rules. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Somebody needs to get in control of this situation. My dear friend says, uh, hey, it's communion. Okay, wait, one more. This Friday night, we're going to have Coco in front of the office. We're going to walk out there and say, hey, you want, you, want, you want some cocoa? It's free, free cocoa. It's pretty good, right? And you look at the crowds. We're going to hopefully have some scooters in the parade. We're going to be riding. Look at the crowds, you know. There was a time I was walking in a parade here in Highland, and I was just like, this is fun, having fun. And a dear, dear brother, friend of mine, come up to me and said, hey, Bill, their souls. They are souls. Listen, you are souls. 
this table, thanksgiving, souls gathered around. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. It's about souls. As a matter of fact, the word it says, if you, if you gather and you don't recognize the body, the word body is not sarks, which is flesh. The word body is the whole picture. If you come, you don't see the glory and magnificent, magnificence of what God is doing if you don't see the body of Christ. That's what the church is called. You're missing it. It's communion. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have some folks distribute the elements around. We set these tables up today um, just to have a little fun. And uh, you're going to stay where you are. Um, I want to say to you right now, man, if you're like, I'm not of this tradition, I'm not comfortable, we're not going to judge you for not taking communion at all. But you are invited to the table of Jesus. Not because we said so, because he said so. He said, yeah, taste and eat. This is my body offered for you. This is the juice, the wine poured out as an offering for your sin. Pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, as we come to your table today, uh, we are honored to be included. I mean, we're just in awe that you would care enough to even offer it to us, that a seat we don't deserve, a place of, of experience that we don't deserve, that you would know us intimately. Father, before we just continue May we take a moment and recognize the price that you paid for this meal. The price that you paid that sin might be forgiven. Indeed, Father, the price that you paid that one sacrifice would be more than enough to pay for everything ever. We thank you so much for the opportunity to come here and to celebrate with you. We pray, Father, that you would um, you know, convict us now, lest we be condemned forever. That you would help us to rightly judge ourselves as we come to the table. May you be glorified. We thank you for both our understanding and the mystery of all that you do. May you be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.